This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Coming up in the show today, two topics that will give you a lot to ponder on. Renowned anthropologist Augustin Fuentes returns to the program to talk about his new must-read book, Why We Believe. Now, Augustin questions why so many of us are religious. Why do we daydream, he asks. What causes us to imagine, to have hope? And, he says, is love a belief? Augustin Fuentes is passionate about his studies and he's a wonderful guest and I don't want you to miss one second of our conversation. First... Robert Hunzinger is a favorite guest we have on the program, and one of the big reasons we talk to Robert is that he writes incredibly interesting articles about the environment and, oh gosh, the climate. So let me, For instance, let me give you some headlines from some of his articles in Counterpunch, which is a must-read. Permafrost hits a grim threshold. China renewed coal boom. Neoliberalism backfires, climate confusion, angst and sleeplessness, ignoring climate catastrophes. Robert Hunzinger, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Hi, Norman. Thanks so much. It's great to talk to you again. Robert, we have you on the program every so often just to give us an update of what's going on in our crazy old world. Yeah. And, it, and it, <laughs> it's kind of odd that we should be talking today. And I just want to throw this in because Mr. Trump tweeted a response to the, the young lady that's on the cover of Time. I'm not going to go to the trouble of reading out his response, but the young lady that's on the cover of Time, uh, Greta Thunberg, of course, is on the cover of Time for her activism in, in climate change. And it, apparently this, mm -hmm. this irked Mr. Trump that she's on the cover of Time and he's not. And apparently he's ignoring the whole point of why, why she's on the cover of Time. But having said that, the reason we have you on the program <laughs> is to talk about climate change. So if you want to make any comments about, um, about Mr. Trump and his strange tweets. I welcome that, but I also welcome your, your updates on what's happening climate-wise. Okay, well, let's, let's talk do an update about what is happening because it's a year of disaster, and I'll talk about that in a little detail. But first, regarding Trump, I just want to relate to you something that I heard Chris Hedges say in a speech, and Chris Hedges, of course, is kind of the leading intellectual in this country for the left. Um, and he said that the, the current administration that's overseeing, and these are his words, the descent of America into dystopia is a motley collection of imbeciles, con artists, thieves, opportunists, and warmongering generals. That's how he refers to our president's, president's administration. And Trump is, a, is an anarchist. He's systematically dismantling every aspect of government that works for the benefit of the general population. And that includes everything from working rights to pop to pollution of the environment to rules for protection of consumers. He's dismantling all of those. So uh, that's the, uh, the real underside of what's going on with this administration. Now, regarding the year, this has been a year of enormous acceleration in five different categories. You've had enormous acceleration in uh, uh, carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. You've also had enormous acceleration of permafrost collapsing 
throughout the northern hemisphere, and that's frightening, by the way. You've also had enormous acceleration of the Greenland ice melt, which also is frightening. You've also had enormous acceleration of Antarctica ice flow, which is also alarming. And finally, number five in my list of what's happening this year, you've had enormous acceleration of new coal-powered plants being constructed. Now, this is the seventh consecutive year of steep global increases in carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. According to Scripps Institution of Oceanography, uh, we hit peak values of new annualized carbon dioxide into the atmosphere this year. We're up 59% over 10 years ago. This is in the face of the 2015 Paris a climate accord where the nations of the world agreed that we must, must, must line in the sand two, two degrees centigrade, preferably 1.5 degrees centigrade increase in temperatures, global temperatures since pre um, industrialization. It's working backwards. It's not happening. It's a disaster. Now let's talk for a minute about why because you mentioned one of the articles I wrote, which is China's renewed coal boom. Mm. And I just put that article out there November 27th, a couple weeks ago. Well, listen to this. Over the last 18 months, and talk about going in the opposite direction of Paris 15. Over the last 18 months, China's added new coal-based electricity generation of 83 gigawatts. In other words, that's enough to power 31 million homes. That's not all. They have plans to triple that amount over the next few years so that what they're going to add in new coal-powered plants the next few years will be the equivalent of 148 gigawatts, which equals, equals the current total coal-generating capacity of the entire European Union today. Not only that, China is also financing 25% of all new coal plants outside of its borders in South Africa, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, elsewhere around the world. They're going coal crazy. Not only is China doing it, India is doing it. India's coal-fired plants increased their capacity by 75% since 2012 for the, over the last seven years. They plan on increasing it another 22% the next three years. Already in India, 14 out of 20 of the world's most polluted cities are right there in India. I think they're going for 20 out of 20 is what they're doing. Not only that, here's another thing that's a problem. Global governments now, this is worldwide, plan on a 120% increase in more fossil fuel production by 2030. It should be going the opposite direction. And this includes the United States, China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, India, Canada, Australia. So if you look at all of these global fossil fuel growth plans, which is just the opposite of what Paris 15 was all about, what the world is on a path now, according to the Stockholm Environmental Institute, of a 4C world. And what does a 4C world look like? Well, uh, according to Hans Schellenluber, of the prestigious Potsdam Institute. He's really the leading climate scientist, one of the world's leading climate scientists. I pay a lot of attention to what he says. If I foresee Earth, Earth's carrying capacity is below 1 billion people. The tropics at that 
Those temperatures, worldwide global average, will be too hot for people to live in. Most temperate regions in the planet will start to desertify. You'll have new deserts in Italy, in Spain, in Greece, in Turkey. Switzerland will be as hot as Baghdad is today. And the Europeans, you'll have a great trek to the north to survive. Listen, since the Paris 15 Climate Accord, that's what, five years ago now? Mm -hmm. Global banks, global banks have invested 1.9, almost 2 trillion, 1.9 trillion dollars in new fossil fuel plants. We're in trouble. We're in big trouble. Mm. Planet's in big trouble. Now, I want to say something here um, about all of this. Um, we're in. We're, we're really getting into it deep in, in a real negative fashion. Some things are going to start really coming apart in the world climate system and it's already starting to happen on the fringes where people don't live and don't see it every day but um i pay a lot of attention to what james lovelock says he turned 100 years old this year he was the father of the guy theory i heard him in an interview with the bbc within the last several months mm -hmm. and i wrote down one of the things he said and i pay attention to him because norman he's an independent he has no axe to grind for 50 years, he just depends upon himself. He's independent. He's not associated with any universities, any corporations or anything. He really tells it like it is. And his perspective is about as good as you're going to get. Yeah. Here's his quote. The earth is in dire trouble and could soon experience intense climate-related disasters. And I'm going to give you a little. We have a preview of what he's talking about because of all this that's going on with fossil fuels and building up of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We already have a preview of what runaway global warming looks like in real time. It happened one year ago in Australia. They had record-breaking heat wave, unprecedented, never before seen anything like it. Temperatures were sustained above 107 degrees Fahrenheit day after day after day. Well, what happened is 20,000 bats dropped out of the sky and died. That's biblical scale kind of uh, extinction event. Hundreds of thousands of herring, perch, cod died washing upshore because of depleted oxygen in the rivers as a result of the drought conditions. Fruit on trees actually cooked from the inside out. So we have a preview of what global runaway global warming looks like. And the way this stuff happens is it kind of comes in waves. It doesn't happen all at once and it doesn't happen uniform around the planet. It works, starts on the fringes of the planet. And that's where we're starting to see some major, major uh, catastrophes if you are a climate scientist already. And you mentioned some of the articles I've written about this. And what's happened, uh, Norman, is since the year 2000, since the start of the new century, Things are accelerating dramatically. Just for example, uh, in February of, of this year, I wrote an article called Thwaites Glacier Startles Scientists, and that's in West Antarctica. It's one of these things where you have those glaciers. It's 100 miles across. It's 4,000 feet deep, and you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Huge. That one glacier alone is worth two feet of sea level rise, by the way. Here's the thing, though. The ice flow rates out of that, because they normally, glaciers have a bit of an ice flow rate all the time, right? It's kind of a normal background rate of, say, 2.2 gigatons per year, right? Since 2000, it's gone up to 9.5 to 10 gigatons per year. That's gone up fourfold. This huge, huge uh, glacier in West Antarctica has increased fourfold. 
I wrote another article called Global Warming's Monster Awakens about East Antarctica because you have East Antarctica, you have West Antarctica, you have the Antarctica Peninsula. By the way, this whole Antarctica ice sheet is about the size of the United States and Mexico combined. Yeah. It's a monster, a monster. Ice is two to three miles thick. And East Antarctica, we have been hearing throughout our entire lifetime. Don't worry about East Antarctica. That's the rock at Gibraltar. That's average temperatures, minus 65 degrees Fahrenheit year-round. Guess what? It's doing the same thing. It's flowing uh, dramatically faster. Now, there's a scientist named Eric Rigno, who is with NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, who's the leading scientist in the world on Antarctica ice. He's written major breakthrough articles about it. And he gave a speech to the National Academies in Washington, D.C. this year about sea level rise. He started his speech. He said, I don't think you need to run for the hills, but I would walk. Wow. I thought, wow. And here's what he's talking about. He talked about the total mass ice loss in East Antarctica, these big glaciers. And what's happened is here again, we're going to look at the year 2000. 1980 to 1990, for 10 years, it lost 40 gigatons per year. 1989 to the year 2000, 50 gigatons. So it loses about 40 to 50 kind of every year. That's the normal background rate. Watch what happens in the year 2000. Year 2000 to the year 2010, 166 gigatons per year. It tripled. It tripled. 2010 to 2017, 252 gigatons per year. This thing is like... a a race car on the Indy 500 when it comes to geological time. It's really happening fast. I hate to say so, this, Robert, uh, but you sound like the prophet of doom. Every time I have you on the program, I, it scares the I living daylights out of yeah. me. It really does. It's getting worse, and it's getting worse, and I haven't even talked about permafrost collapsing yet, Norman. Right. Yes. This is serious stuff. Uh, I mean, you've got, uh, you know, examples of permafrost across, you know, permafrost, 25% of the entire northern hemisphere is permafrost. And that contains unbelievable amounts of carbon, you know, greenhouse gases that's right. been frozen for eons. It's coming to part of the seams. There, there are scientists who did some studies up there, and they said, this what's happening now, we thought would happen in the year 2090. Does that mean global warming 70 years ahead of time? Yes, wow. it does. Yes. We got, we got some really serious problems popping up. And the problem is this. People don't see it. I don't see it. I live in Los Angeles. Every day is gorgeous here, right? Yes. I don't see it. But if, I'll guarantee you, if I were a scientist up doing field studies up in, the, up in the permafrost region, I'd have to move my camp every few months now instead of every five to ten years. Right. Think of that. Robert, I was, last week I was invited to Miami, to Art Basel. And whilst I was there, I was looking around in, in South Beach area, and I was looking at all the cranes and construction going on. And I reflected on a conversation I'd had with you where you said that Miami could just absolutely be underwater in next to no time if, if uh, some of the ice melts and we have a big uh, what a, a surge of um, the ocean just starts to come in that direction. It made me think, yeah. it gave me chills just looking at how vulnerable it is uh, on that side of the coast. Yeah. But Robert, in the very short time that we have left, let's just wrap by just making a suggestion what we all in our little sort of way that we can do to help write letters vote what 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 do you suggest that we can all do because i i i love having you on but i also at the same time 
kind of fear what you're going to say every time you come on the program. So what? <laughs> <laughs> it's getting worse by the year. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah. By the way. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. So what? What do you suggest? What are the few things that we can all just do? Well, I, here's what I think. I think as an individual, um, you can only do so much in life, right? And I think you just have to be aware and, and, and talk to people about it and study it and go into it and try to teach yourself what's really going on. Because what we really need is we need an army, a mass army of people. Uh, now, Greta Thunberg, for example, Greta, you talked about yes. her early on. Yeah. You know, I, wrote, I wrote an article about her, uh, the Joan of Arc of Global Warming, a couple, yes. about a year, two years ago before the world even got to know who she is. Uh, that type of thing where you've got the kids out every Friday saying, you know what, the adults are, are d- destroying, taking our future away from us. Uh, those kind of things, I think, will have an impact. It caused people to start to sit up and pay more attention. But do everything you can. Get out there to do everything you can to get Republicans and Trump out of the White House and out of Congress. Number one, that would be one thing you could do. Republicans are dangerous for this country, by the way. Very dangerous. Get them out of the office. Go get them out. Get Trump out. Get Hit the streets. Go door to door and say, we have to save the planet. Here's how we do it. Get these bums out. Get the bums out. And they are bums. Period. Can, can I quote you on that, Robert? Unfortunately, time is always up against us, but you, you have very succinctly explained so much. Fear, fearful as it is, it is a delight having you on the program. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. I wish you a very happy holidays, despite the doom and gloom that you tell us all about. And thank you once again okay. for joining us. We've been talking to Robert Hunzinger. He is a, a, an environmental journalist. You can find a lot of his writing in Counterpunch, which I highly recommend. The link will be up at lifeelsewhere.com. Robert, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. You bet. Thank you, Norman. Great talking to you. The links to Robert Hunziker's articles for Counterpunch are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Go there for all the details about our shows and all of our outlets. Still to come, why are so many humans religious? Why do we daydream, imagine and hope? Augustin Fuentes explores these questions in his new book, Why We Believe. Our talk with Professor Fuentes, right after this. This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. Let us know what you think of our show. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Why We Believe, and the subtitle, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. I'm going to repeat that. Listen to this subtitle again because I want you to take careful notice of it. Evolution and the Human Way of Being. Welcome back to the program. The author, Augustine Fuentes. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Thanks, Norman. It's great to be back here with you. I've got a little, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit of a frog in the throat this morning, so I hope you'll excuse me if I sound a little hoarse at times. I wanted to repeat the subtitle to your book because I think it is so incredibly important, and then we're going to get into it. I'm going to give the title again for everybody, Why We Believe, Evolution, and the Human Way of Being. Very clever stuff there, Augustine. Talk to me just very briefly about the title. Well, the title is really important because belief is so incredible, obviously. I think it's important, and I think everyone recognizes that, but I think people don't recognize how important it is and how powerful it is. But that subtitle that you point out, Evolution, 
and the human way of being. I think there's two reasons I, I use that subtitle. The first one is most people have no idea what evolution is or what it means and have really a sort of a myth about it that's somewhat scary or somewhat negative. So I want to put that to rest. But the more important thing is to point out that understanding human evolution helps us understand the way humans are in the world, but it also points to this much larger notion. We are not just our bodies or not just our bones or not just our histories. There's a lot more to being human. And so by thinking through evolution and the human way of being, I'm hoping that we open this up, this conversation, to not just the bones and the stones of our past or the genes and cells of our present, but to what all of that means in the larger human experience. Yes, and you do it so well. I'm going to lavish praise <laughs> upon you because for me, this is the book that I always wanted to read. Ever since I was able to read, I've always had this notion that one of these days I'm going to find out why we believe, which of course is <laughs> <laughs> because I've always, it's always been a confusion to me. I, I, it really has. And I, I, when I was in high school, religion fascinated me. And when I went to college, I studied religious studies and it's always been it's been something which even right now i I'm, I'm just absolutely fascinated by it and you've answered an awful lot of questions so i want to get to sort of the most important part for me and, and you explain it in your book but for my listeners why did you write this book augustine well, there's a number of different reasons, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm an anthropologist, so I study sort of human evolution, I study human behavior, I study other primates, I understand how our bodies work and how that working of bodies helps us understand our communities, our health and our potential futures. So all of that sort of undergirds the sort of materiality of my science. But at the same time, I'm a human being, right? And I'm an anthropologist and I study cultures and societies and lives. And it always strikes me that you can't reduce the human just to our materialness, right? Just to our bodies. There's a lot more going on. And everyone tends to think that is the area of just philosophy or of theology or religious studies. And, and what my research, my collaboration with many, many, many diverse scholars and, and just people around the world has shown me has forced me to see is that um, this idea of belief, it's all of those things together. And so I wrote this book sort of because I had to, because I've been working on this probably most of my academic life. It's, it's trying to get a little closer to a deeper and fuller understanding of why we do these things that we do and why they're so important. Belief matters. Yes. <laughs> I was about to say, I was going to give you a round of applause there. <laughs> I love well, I, it's, there's this, this whole idea when I say belief matters, I, I just I want to emphasize to people that belief is this capacity we have. Yeah. It's not just about religion, but religion is so important. Yes. There's so much more. And if you recognize how that works, you are in a better place to maybe push against some of the bad and try to facilitate the good. Yes, Absolutely. One of the pleasures of reading this book, in fact, one of the pleasures of reading anything that you write is that you clearly love words. You love language. <laughs> and let's get into the book, Why We Believe Evolution and the Human Way of Being. Part one, who we are and how did we come to believe? Now, this, for me, is so incredibly crucial. And I think for anybody that starts to think about why we believe is how did we come to believe? Can you just give us just a little overview from your point of view as, as you write it in the book? 
Yeah, I think that's really, really important because to talk about belief, we have to understand how do we do it, right? And part of that is this evolutionary history, right? Humans have this more than two million year history that's incredible that drills down to a few basic concepts. Humans have been successful in the world because we cooperate, we collaborate, we create, and we have this incredible cognitive complexity, right? So I'm using a little alliteration there. Uh, We have this incredible ability to get along, to think with one another, um, and that is in a large part what makes us human. So that story, right, to understand what we believe and how we believe today, we need to have that, un- that story, that background, especially the last 10, 20, 30,000 years where we began reshaping the world in ways that changed the shape of the planet, the way we perceive it, and the way we see each other. And all of those things are the baseline for how we believe. So our evolution sets us up to understand uh, how we got here. And then the trick is, to try to understand how it works. How do we believe? Yes, and that's what we're going to get into. But I'm going to do something a little daring here, and I'm going to go from chapter one to chapter 11. And And because I think this is – because I'm I'm, I'm doing this in in two reasons. One, because I want to get to it and don't want to miss it. And two, because I think it follows on uh, from what you just said, but there's so much in between. And the headline is, Does Belief Matter? This is something, again, that I've pondered on for for years. And and I'm going to throw it over to you and ask you, Augustine, does belief matter? Yes, it does, but it's not always a good thing. And that's the problem that we have to deal with. Understanding the power of belief and how important it is in our lives, in every aspect of our lives, uh, is central. But understanding that shows us how damaging certain beliefs or belief systems or patterns can be or how manipulating belief uh, can be really damaging. So belief matters very much. And if it is probably one of the most important things undergirding human societies, we should really know how it works. So yes, belief does matter. But it, that, 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 that's a very general question. I like, and I try in this chapter 11, to point out a few cases where I think it especially matters and that we really need to understand it. Yes. The subtitle to this program, Life Elsewhere, it's about art, media, and culture. And you have in chapter five, what is culture? And I think this is, again, everything is so important. I want to find out from you, what is culture? So people tend to think of culture as this sort of thing that we do, that it's laid on top of our biology, right? It's like we're biological organisms. We walk around in bodies with hearts and blood and guts and things like that. And then culture is this extra thing that humans do, right? That's history, it's society, it's art. Um, Well, yes, that's sort of true. But what people don't realize is that dividing the body from the mind or the body from culture and humans is a bad move. It's simply not true. As we are born, we grow up in and around languages, ideas, concepts, beliefs. They actually shape not just our neurobiology, but our bodies and the way our bodies and biologies perceive the world. So culture and biology are not two separate things. They actually grow together. So culture is what humans do and are. It's the sort of niche, the world we live in. And understanding that is very important because there are specific things that we can understand about why people do what they do if we understand that culture is not just a few elements or items or traits, but is fact a, a way of being. My guest is Augustin Fuentes. He is a professor of anthropology and chair of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame. 
And one reason I'm saying that to my listeners, telling my listeners your background there is because I'm wondering, as an anthropologist, did this make you more more better suited to write or to ask this question why we believe? Well, I mean, yes, I'm biased, right? I'm going to just say it bluntly. I think anthropology is one of the best disciplines, best academic fields out there. Yeah. Um, and, and why is that? Uh, the reason is because I have such great respect for all disciplines. Anthropology, the reason I became an anthropologist is I'm really interested in biology. I'm really interested in history. I'm really interested in art. I'm really interested in literature. I'm really interested in hanging out with other human beings. I'm even really interested in hanging out with monkeys. Interestingly, all of those things fall under anthropology. So, yes, anthropology is great and diverse. But what it sets you up with is this idea that humans are incredibly complicated, that there are many successful ways to be human, and that understanding those two things does not mean we have to throw our hands up and give up and say we can't understand about humans. Rather, they push you to be slow, thoughtful, careful, and multidisciplinary in how you ask your questions. Why We Believe is the title. The subtitle is Evolution and the Human Way of Being. As I said earlier, it's for me, this is just a thoroughly fascinating book. It, it just is a wonderful book. Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking this would be a good book for Christmas. Did you do this on purpose? I'm just, <laughs> as I'm, as I'm saying, did you do this on purpose that this would be a great book to give people at Christmas? People, particularly people that have quandaries about religion and about belief. It's a, it's a yeah. perfect book. Let me ask you about this. Uh, putting this book together, obviously you did an incredible amount of research and there's some great illustrations in the book and I, I, I wish we had time. To, actually, I wish this was video so we could hold it up and show people. <laughs> uh, but I'm just thinking to myself, did Augustine spend, how much time did you spend putting this together? And there's a second question to that. Let, let me get that question first. How much time did, did it take to put this book together? Well, I mean, it depends on when you want to start the clock. Um, <laughs> part of this book is my life experience. Yeah, so let yeah, us say, you know, 53-odd yes. years. Right. Uh, but, but in reality, how long did it take to write? Not that long uh, because it really reflects the last maybe two decades of my research. Right. Um, and I didn't know it until a few years ago when I was uh, sort of lucky enough to give a series of lectures uh, called the Gifford Lectures, which enabled me to draw together all of these different threads from biology, philosophy, anthropology, history. And, and, and over the course of two weeks, spend six days lecturing to a very robust audience in Edinburgh um, and talking to them about these things. And that, after that, the book wrote itself. Yes. So as you're putting the book together, obviously you spoke, as you, as you mentioned in your book, you, you talk to many different people from many different quarters. I'm right. thinking that it must have been fascinating for you to hear the different viewpoints and I wonder how many people you came across, learned people, people whose uh, knowledge that you respect, that you found yourself, um, well, let's put it politely, just uh, arguing with. <laughs> well, let's say, uh, maybe all of them, I think. <laughs> 
but but this is a great point, right? Um, um, that's the whole wonderful thing about the quest for knowledge, right? Is it isn't all about agreeing; it's about having the discussions because we learn from the discussions. And in fact, um, I've learned more from my arguments and my disagreements where I have been wrong uh, than those that I've been right. Um, so so I think I think that's very important. So I, I worked with theologians, I work with philosophers, I work with biologists, I work with historians, and and what's really impressive about all of these different areas is that my perspective is different from theirs. And yet, again and again, we touch upon these same topics. And the more we discuss it, the more we talk about it, the more I read broadly in these different ways of approaching, I start to see common themes and patterns. And that's what's in this book. This book is a, a sort of a result of resonance of all these different ways of asking questions coming together and showing um, not universal answers, but common patterns. Mm. Whilst I was reading your book, I spent Thanksgiving with a, a family who are of Latin heritage. One of the things that came into conversation, and then of course I talked about your book, was that they are the whole family, and it was uncles and aunts and grandmothers, and there was lots of people. And of course, they are devout Catholics. And I, I did mention your book. I, I, I showed your book and talked about your book. And I found that I was, I was faced with some very deeply furrowed brows. People were looking at me like, um, how dare you come into our, our house? Even though we love you very much, you're saying something which we really don't want to hear. And, the, and they, they really didn't want to hear, Augustine. They were almost to the point of this is sacrilegious. How could you dare to be reading something and talking about something which is so wrong? Let me get your take on that. So I think that's wonderful, and thank you for asking that, because that's really, really important. Here's one of the biggest things. First of all, talking about evolution and talking that humans have evolved, that is not in contradiction to any of the major religious doctrines on the planet. Yeah, yeah. It is in contradiction to fundamentalists or to individuals who are biblical literalists. Yeah. And in those, people can just go off by themselves because they're antithetical to understanding and knowledge. Yeah. So let's put that aside. The family you're with probably just, as do many people of faith, have this preconception about what evolution means and about what it might mean to say that we have evolved the capacity to believe. Yes. So I have many theologians as colleagues who actually are in this book. Um, I, I draw heavily on theological investigation and research. Now, we may disagree on some key facets, uh, uh, some key conclusions. But what happens and what I've learned is that understanding the incredible human capacity for belief and let's say transcendence, right, the more than the perceptual, the more than the material as a central part of humanity, that is equally important for a theologian and an anthropologist. We might disagree on where that can take us, but we do not disagree on the reality of that for the human experience. So nothing in this book challenges core faith practices or beliefs or traditions. In fact, it invites them to the discussion and to think together with a diverse array of, of interests and scholars about what it means to be human and why religion is so important, but is not the only aspect of it. Yes, yes. And you know, this is what I tried to put across to that family. And I added this. I said, I question things. And they turned around to me. All together, it seemed like, like a chorus that said, but why? Why would you question what God says? Your thoughts on that? 
So here, there, I have two very uh, important thoughts on that, at least important to me, and I'll try to be as succinct as possible. So why ask why? My first question, my first answer to that question is because we're human. Um, and whether you like it or not, that's what humans do. And that's what's been an incredible benefit to us and a horrible bane to us. <laughs> the, the asking of why gets us into more trouble, but it also really helps us do better in the world and for each other. So that's the one part. The second part is... We need to know why. We need to know why we believe. We need to know why we do what we do. Look at the world around us today. We are in a place of incredible inequality, of unbelievable racism, nationalism, and misogyny, of, of a kind of disconnect between peoples and lives that we've never seen before and probably in the history of humanity. We need to understand how that can be possible. And if you understand what belief is, you understand that when someone believes something, even if you think it's a horrible thing, if they believe it, it's real for them. Yes. That's what, how they experience the world. And that's a bait. We have to start there. We can't just say, oh, I don't like you. You're an idiot. Right. No. We have to understand that what people believe is real yes. for them. And that is so hard for somebody like myself who questions everything to, to, to right. grasp, which then leads me to ask you. And, and this is a question that I've been pondering on since reading your book. And that is, why do I question? Why do people like myself? Why do some of us question what is in front of us? So if, if I had the answer to that, uh, you know, I'd be sitting on probably the top selling <laughs> book ever and, uh, you know, a giant grant. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I wish I knew. Here's my here's my idea. Here's yeah. my theory. Um, and it's one shared by a lot of a lot of researchers. And that is all humans vary. Right. There are many successful ways to, to be human. And we all have different wiring in our brains and different sort of little individual tweaks. Um, and when you combine certain patterns and contexts of growing up, of exposure, of events in the life with certain just sort of individual distinctions or, or peculiarities, you get minds or individuals that are more inquisitive. And if you're lucky enough not to have that beaten out of you as you grow up, as pushed down or pushed away by careers, by school, by parents, by colleagues, if for some reason that was allowed to flourish and grow, you get this incredibly inquisitive mind, which I think are really, really important, but not everyone likes it because people don't like when we keep bugging them with the question, but why? Yes. We are talking to Augustin Fuentes. The book is called Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. I want to talk to you about Chapter 4, Animals, Plants, Buildings and Pottery. Before we get to that, we're going to take a quick station break. Then when we come back, more conversation with Augustin Fuentes. We love to hear what you have to say. Write to this address, info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. If you're just joining us, my guest is Professor Augustin Fuentes. He's a professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame. He has a new book, which we're thrilled about. It's called Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. A fascinating read, Augustin. It really is. Chapter 4, Animals, Plants, Buildings and Pottery. When I started reading this chapter, I was thinking to myself, now where, where exactly is he going with this? Tell my listeners where you go with this. <laughs> so I think it's really important, and, and I have to be biased. I love that title because you look at it and you're like, what could this possibly yes. be about? Yeah. Um, it, 
It's about the infrastructure for who we are today. So what it is, it's the history of the last, let's say, you know, 10, 20,000 years. It is the history of domestication. It's the history of cities. It's the history of pottery and storage and surplus and inequality and poverty and property. It is a history over this, in an evolutionary sense, very short time, last 10, 15,000 years, where the way humans are in the world, the way we manipulate the world and structure the world changed enough that it created new ways of being human. And so what I like to argue is that our ability to manipulate animals and plants, our ability to build cities and towns, our ability to create surplus goods and economies, and our ability to create inequalities, all have made us a particular kind of human that thinks and believes particular kinds of things. So the reason I say that is that it doesn't mean because we believe what we believe now or we think the world is this way, is the way it's always been or the way it will always be. We need to understand history to understand why we do what we do now, but also to help us, should we want to, change what we believe in the future. So well explained. You know, Everything I'm hearing in the news, I keep thinking, I keep referencing back to your book. <laughs> For instance, yesterday I heard the news that a cave painting had been, I think in, in Indonesia, had been found yeah. of uh, over 40,000 years ago. The first is what they consider to be the oldest depiction of um, uh, humans hunting. I, I think that's the way they described it. But anyway, it's over 40,000 years old. And it made me think about belief. It made me think about what your book, the central theme of your book. There is no end. There is no beginning, is there? It's, it's right there in front of us, which now leads me, yeah. to, which now leads me to ask you about a four-letter word, which uh, a word which I've is always confused me as much as belief has, and that is love. And you talk about love in your book, and I'd love you to talk to my listeners about love. This was one of the most important chapters for me um, because I, I want to do two things with it. One, I want to show people very, very clearly how understanding our biology and evolutionary history helps us understand why bonding, why being together, why getting together with others, uh, why compassion and caring is so central to being human. Those things are ground into us from, from, from birth, uh, before birth on. Being compassionate, caring for others, being together in community the infrastructure of what a lot of people would call for love is part of our biology, part of evolutionary history. But on the flip side, I also want to point out that what we call love, we have all of these different belief systems about. We have all of these different cultural histories and psychologies. And so what happens is we have this pattern of humans with an incredible capacity for compassion and caring. But then we lay on it all these different expectations and contexts, and sometimes we make it really, really difficult to do what we're really good at. And so I want people to be excited by this chapter, to understand that all of these ranges of what we call love are out there and they're part of the human experience, but also not to be wed to only one way of being with others in the world. And I think that's really important. Oh, gosh, I think you're so, you, once again, you put it so well. I, I Just a little personal note on that one. I've wondered about love, uh, again, all my life, I guess, being in and out of love. But something happened for me a, a few years back, just a couple of years back. One of my dearest, dearest friends from from way back, from art school, way back in London, many, many years ago, suddenly killed over from a heart attack, heart attack and died. Oh. And I've had a number of people in my life, including parents, die. 
But when my friend Ken died, I, I promise you, I could not stop crying for, for at least yeah. three days. And I wondered to myself, was this because I loved him as a friend? What, what was causing this emotion for me to be so distraught about this, this death more than any other deaths? I'm not asking you to answer that question, but it just it sort of ties in with why we believe. And I, I, I just, Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, absolutely. So, so let me say, I mean, uh, you know, my condolences. These are such powerful things to happen, but they're also wonderful things in that they show us what love is. Yes. And, and, and so we say, I love as a parent, I love as a friend, uh, right. this is my lover. We have all these different categorizations. We need to every now and then step back and say, no, I love this person. Yes. Right. And that that is a deep, real thing and that it is necessitated right, by this belief system. We commit wholly, fully, not just to the biological relationship, not to just the way our bodies or minds feel, but to a kind of commitment, a belief in a connection that becomes real. And those are so powerful. So when you love someone and they pass, I mean, you, you can't ever get over it, Yes. Um, but you can get with it uh, in the sense of, of how amazing it has been to be in that relationship. And I think that's really important. We have the great you know, biology and psychology and the philosophical orientations to talk about this. But sometimes we've got to step back and just recognize we believe in love for a variety of different reasons and a variety of different ways. Sometimes we just need to be a little bit more open and not try to constrain all of these things and maybe explain them away as as different categories yes augustine in putting the book together i'm i'm curious to know if you as a as a professor of anthropology was there anything or were there many things that surprised you in your research for the book was there was there was there something which made you sort of sit back for a moment and go oh i hadn't thought of that yeah, I, there were a number of different things. One of the most important ones was we talked about the chapter four. What was most important ones was seeing how much of what we do and think today here in the 21st century, how much what we think and do today has so influenced by things that happened 10,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, so that that was for me, I've always, that's what I teach and study. But when you really see how clearly that is and, and how much we've changed and how much we haven't changed, uh, that's very surprising. Another thing uh, was was the deep sense of humility uh, that I received from this book, from writing it, from recognizing how much information there is out there, how many great thinkers have come before me and that I'm drawing on, and how many human beings are so amazing and incredible in contributing at local, international, regional levels and just to their friends and families. It, it's really, it, it was necessary because in a time when things seem to be so bad, it's really nice to be reminded how much people care and how much people believe in one another. Yes, that is such an important, I, I, it's funny you say that. In, in some regards, because if you read the headlines, if you if you look at what's going on around us, you it's almost like it's a big gray cloud hanging over everything. But it's really yeah. not like that, is it? It's it's the world has always been gray in some parts and sunny in others, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yes and no. Right? Yeah. I would say right now we're systemically really in a bad position, right? <laughs> Inequality is greater than it's ever been. Yeah. We've got this incredible nationalism and racism and misogyny growing up. So, I mean, there are real issues that are really bad. But, so my ray of light here is not that some government's going to save us or some system of political or religious belief. My ray of light is that humanity 
our capacity to believe, our capacity to care for, to be compassionate, that's the ray of light. And what you just said, I think is very important because even though there's these global systemic problems, there are lots and lots and lots of people out there. And the vast majority of those people are doing good by others, right? And want to do good by others. That's really important. And it is a belief system, right? That is, that, that can spread. And that I think is very attractive to humans. Not all of us want to participate in these really unequal, unethical processes and patterns. We're just sort of stuck in them right now. But I'm always a cautious optimist about humanity. I've studied the last two and a half million years of human evolution, and um, we've done okay. So yes. um, I think we have the capacity to do better in the future. Yes, you, th- you put two words together a little, little bit there, and that's a monologue there. You said religion and poli- politics. So you, you sort of lump them together, uh, things that we focus on. And, and I'm just wondering whether politics, from your point of view, is something that we should be considering in terms of belief and the reason I'm saying this of course is because we do live in a sort of a tribal time particularly in this country and some countries in Europe right now and of course around the world but it does seem that we've separated ourselves into into tribes and and I'm just wondering from your point of view and in reference to your book is a belief in a certain kind of political stance is is that the same as religion or whatever the belief might be is it a belief or 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 what 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 is that so not to uh, speak disrespectfully of any religions because they're complex institutions with yeah. histories and all of these other kinds of things let's put that aside yeah. the contemporary political landscape in the united states is all about belief it is all about belief. How can I say that? It's because people, regardless of facts, regardless of information, regardless of the reality staring them in the face, wholly, fully commit to a particular belief about right and wrong, mm. about us versus them, and just go with that. That's, that is belief, and that's actually a kind of fundamentalist belief, and that's dangerous because there is no asking, but why, or maybe this could be a different way. That's what scares me, is that we've divided ourselves into these clusters of belief, and I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say that certain groups have believed themselves into a place that I'm not sure there's any coming back from. Yes. Mm. Scary words, but but very believable, of course. <laughs> <Which in turn>. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, if you think about this whole, this just commitment, regardless of what's there, yeah. that scares me because that takes the, the most important part of belief and human capacity off the table. The capacity to question, the capacity to doubt, yes. the capacity to push against things. That, that's what's got us here. And if you take that off the table, what do we have left? Yes. In your studies, Augustine, as an anthropologist and going back the, the millions of years that we can go back, that we know of, um, you've, you've, you've documented and you've read and you've collated information and you, you have all these facts and you've allowed yourself to, to harness some of these, this information and put it together into this book under the title of Why We Believe. I'm curious to know whether, as time has gone on, can we sort of see, I guess in a, like a graph, can, can we see sort of ups and downs of when belief was more important or when it was less important or how it sort of dominated or, or, or didn't, as the case may be? Any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so I think there are a couple different graphs we could put in there. I'm not a big fan of graphs, but if I were to put in <laughs> graphs, uh, one would be over the history of humanity, the density and power of belief has increased. Yeah. So. So the role of belief has become more and more dominant uh, in, in human societies and in human histories. So that's one graph. Another graph would be which kinds of beliefs go up and down, right? And so here I'll give you three systems of belief that are very powerful, economics, politics, and religion. Mm-hmm. And the graphing of those three things as they relate, they're always inter- interconnected. They're not separate. But, but that's very interesting because people believing in different things, right, believing in particular economic systems, political, political systems, particular religious systems, those can lead to conflicts or maybe even end conflicts. Uh, it depends. But those are the charts and graphs that I find most interesting, particularly recently. Yes. There's a word that I'm going to throw at you, which one of the notes I made on, on reading your book, and the word is technology. How does technology come into play when we're talking about belief? So, I mean, one of the most important things about belief or for, for it to work, we don't just need individuals, right? We need groups. Belief systems do not emerge without communities, without groups, without nations, if you want, uh, religions, institutions. Technology has made access, communication, information, and dissemination of that information much more readily available globally. So I would say that beliefs can be changed, altered, impacted, reinforced much more quickly, much more mm, powerfully, and uh, maybe much more dangerously uh, than they ever have been before. And that's all thanks to technology. Yes. And talking about danger, going off on another tangent here, I guess, I'm wondering about the misuse of belief, if, if you can sort of talk about that. So, I mean, the power of belief is that when someone believes, right, when a community has a belief system, they commit wholly and fully to it. They, they commit to this concept and it becomes their perceptual reality, the way in which the world is for them. So if you can convince people to believe something that is dangerous, for example, racism, Yes. Right. Or this this idea that someone who you're going to classify as a different kind of person than you to believe they are less than you because of the color of their skin or the kind of their hair or their religious affiliation. If you believe that it's real for you and that's unbelievably dangerous, not just to you, not just to the other people, but to the society in which you live. So so by creating and promulgating racist beliefs that really acts as a challenge and is very, very dangerous. Yes. Yes. Putting the book together, I keep coming back to this because this is one of those books that you've got to read it. And like I did, you've got to read it all the way through and then go back to it and sort of pick pick chapters and go back into it another time, which is the way I love to read books like this. In writing this book, I have the feeling that you, when you started, when you started just getting it together, that you were really enjoying the whole idea of putting this book together. And I just get the feeling, just from the way you've written the book and just talking to you right now, you're very enthusiastic. I just get the feeling that you enjoyed every moment of putting this book together. Am I right? Yes, you're absolutely right. This is one of the most difficult and most enjoyable things I've ever done. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I love what you just said that you'd read through it and go back to, cause I wrote each of these chapters. I mean, I want everyone to read the whole book, yeah. but I also want you to be able to just pick it up and open it up and find something fascinating and interesting. Um, and it's not always easy, but, but my goal was to make it accessible and engaging. Well, this is something else I have to comment on. And that is a book like this. When you look at the cover, why we believe evolution and the human way of being, and you get the sort of the, the little twist on words there and you say, to yourself, this is going to be a bit of a heavy read. But I've already, I've read your your works before, so I know the how you write. But I found this to be so enjoyable. You have a, just a an enigmatic way of writing, which is really, I think, so incredibly enjoyable. Augustine Fuentes, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, this is, as I, as I keep saying, I'm lavishing praise on this because I do think it deserves it. What's next for you? Because I have a feeling that you've got lots more coming up. Well, I, yeah, that's uh, funny that you say that. So um, in uh, July of 2020, so of next year, I will be moving to Princeton University uh, and beginning a new range of research, engaging in teaching. I love University of Notre Dame, and they've been very, very good to me. Uh, but it's time to sort of move and expand. I'm also considering a few new major research projects. Um, I have to keep those somewhat under wraps, but think of maybe the next book, a major book like this in four to five years is going to be about about um, more about culture and oh, why weird. really understanding culture matters. And uh, it matters to our neurobiologies. It matters to our histories and our daily lives. And it especially matters for our future. Yes, indeed. So well put again. You know, what? as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking to myself, I would love to have the opportunity to do a, a live question and answer, a, li- a live interview in front of an audience with you, because I think you would just be just be really riveting. I think it would be just fascinating. Augustine. A- anytime, anytime <laughs> you say invite me, I'm there. I love chatting with you. It's yeah. always a great pleasure. Maybe, maybe we can set that up at some point. So you, you, I know that you do travel around and do lectures all over the place, don't yep. you? Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe we're sort of... Get that. uh, Well, let's see if we can arrange something like that. Yes. The book is called Why We Believe Evolution and the Human Way of Being. The author is Professor of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, Augustine Fuentes. Augustine, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. I wish you every success with the book and uh, happy holidays. Thanks, and happy holidays to you as well. Put your hands together now. A big round of applause to our guests and a large thank you to you for listening. If you'd like to hear this or any of our shows again, you have a number of options. Go to NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also find our shows up at Mixcloud and at lifeelsewhere.co. Plus, we have affiliate stations who have wonderful programming and we urge you to check them out. The links are all available, once again, at lifeelsewhere.co. Oh, and please make sure you check out our music show, ingeniously titled Life Elsewhere Music. Till next time, be good, be well, and always, it costs nothing, be nice. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. 
behind-the-scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Life Elsewhere is produced at the studios of WMNF Tampa.